Hello and welcome to the Astana International Financial Centre's Legal Tech Podcast with your host, Mark Beer. Good day to everybody and today it is a great pleasure to be able to introduce uh, our guest on this podcast, Dr. Roland Vogel, uh, a scholar, a gentleman, a lawyer, an entrepreneur. Many motifs apply to uh, Dr. Vogel. He spent 20 years or more in academia and uh, in the professional world, and he's developed a huge expertise in legal informatics, intellectual property law, and innovation. Uh, Dr. Vogel is the executive director of the Stanford Programme in Law, Science and Technology and a lecturer in law at Stanford Law School, uh, one of the foremost law schools in the world. Uh, So, Dr. Vogel, it's a great pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, Let's start off with uh, the recording that we're having now is coming towards, we hope, the tail end of the COVID crisis. And we know that out of crisis uh, occasionally comes uh, innovation. Uh, We saw it, didn't we, in the financial crisis. And so many technology firms were born in that that era, whether Uber or Airbnb and others. Will the COVID crisis, in your view, lead to greater innovation, entrepreneurialism? Um, Will it drive legal technology? What do you think the output will be? I think it will certainly accelerate innovation in the legal technology space. Uh, I think it will have a quite profound uh, impact on how, you know, the courts are uh, operating, how law firms are operating, how legal talent will do its work. Um, I think we'll see a profound impact. Uh, It may or may not be as uh, impactful as the 2008 recession. But uh, I think uh, a lot of the trends that were started uh, in the, you know, let's say 15 years ago. So I think um, all these trends were on underway, but the pandemic really accelerated uh, many of those trends. So, yes, I, I do think there will be significant impact of, of the pandemic on the legal innovation space. And, and indeed, many law schools are, are telling me now that some of their brightest students don't leave anymore to be lawyers. They leave to be technologists and set up business and to be entrepreneurs. Is that a trend that you're seeing in the, in the U.S.? And if so, uh, which areas are students uh, preferring to go into? So so that started some time ago. I, I saw it first, uh, I would say, uh, almost you know eight, nine years ago. Uh, when at my law school, several students came to us um, and said, look, you know, there's, you know, there's better ways for doing legal search. And, um, and, and they, you know, typical Stanford way, they tried it through means of a startup. And some of them were quite, quite successful. You know, Ravel being one of them that was acquired by, by LexisNexis. Um, Lex Machina actually came out of one of our research projects, but had very active student involvement too. So I do think that it's becoming more and more of a viable career path for, for law students to, to go into to legal tech. Um, and some of them don't, don't even put in these sort of obligatory few years in, in the law firm. Some of them just jump, jump right in directly. I think that's a fairly uh, new phenomenon. And it's not only law students. I think uh, the legal domain has become also an interesting area for application of new AI techniques. And so we see more and more computer science students, undergrads, master students, PhD students trying to bring their tools to the legal sphere because they see that's, you know, they can have an impact there. 
and uh, and improve the lives of, of people and also be successful as entrepreneurs. So it's become uh, a, a viable application area for for uh, computer science and and we see more and more students move into that area. And it's that synthesis, I suppose, isn't it, of computer science and law um, overlaid with some perhaps leadership and management skills. Do you see that as the law firm of the future? So, yes, I do. I mean, the law firm of the future, that's an interesting conversation in itself. I, I see uh, more and more law firms um, trying to put a stake in the ground and, um, you know, start their own innovation labs, start their own subsidiaries that uh, build technology for their clients. But I also, you know, see lots of uh, law firms still kind of uh, hang on to the traditional you know, billable hours model and you know there is there is a tension and and to create technology is a real commitment and the opportunity costs for lawyers to do that are huge you can, can build like a thousand dollars an hour you know, why would you spend the time in creating some tool you know where you're not quite sure you know how how to monetize that and so on and so forth so so it's a very uh, challenging transition i think uh Many law firms are doing interesting things, but I don't think we know quite yet what the law firm of the future looks like. So we see, uh, you know, other players coming from outside the law firm, companies that create platforms that allow people to go through a whole variety of different uh, legal workflows that, you know, have high quality legal content in them that are customizable for many different uh, scenarios, let's say of, a, of an early stage company, you could have, you know, sort of HR workflow flows and corporate governance workflows and and hiring and and uh, and and issuing options and that sort of thing. They sort of stop short of saying, you know, they're a law firm, right? They say we are like we're not here to replace your lawyer. In fact, you know, you can bring your lawyer to our platform to help you review your content and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so that's an other issue. I think they are sort of those kinds of platforms are kind of eating into the traditional law firms business. And uh, uh, that's an, another, I think that is one aspect of the law firm of the future, even they, they would, you know, those players are sort of, they would not say they're a law firm. Similarly, uh, alternative legal service providers um, is another way to you know, to, 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 to find, you know, legal services uh, in, in the future. They would also not, you know, call themselves law firms, but they do a lot of things that the traditional law firms used to do. And they're also eating into the, the law firm's business. You know, hard to see how those players are not kind of, uh, you know, competing with law firms, even though law firms, I think, are more and more trying to find a place in this kind of more um, diverse ecosystem of uh, legal service providers uh, and in many ways they are starting to team up with legal techs or with alternative legal service providers sometimes to create their own and uh, yeah so I don't I can't give you a, a very clear description of what it's going to look like in the future but I think it's going to look different from what it looks like now uh, and uh, and it you know also depends on which areas we're talking to some areas in the law you know, already, um, you know, operate under very different principles than they used to, and others are still more, more traditional. But yeah, it certainly is an exciting time in the space, and you see a lot of change.
I think it's that disintermediation, isn't it, of the traditional lawyer-client relationship, which is what many technology firms are getting involved in. But at the end of the day, um, regulators around the world have granted lawyers a monopoly on the provision of legal advice, uh, with some exceptions. But in the main, the, comp the, 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 the pact is uh, you lawyers have an ethical duty to uphold the legal system and to protect justice, and in return for which we'll give you a monopoly. And, and to some extent, I wonder if that's why so many legal tech firms are trying to get close to law firms. Um, but is the answer, rather than let the market uh, lead this, is the answer, do you think, for regulators to be more accommodating of technology in the provision of legal advice and legal services? So uh, the short answer is yes. <clears throat> I think the regulators have a, uh, it's a regulated profession. And so the regulators have an important role to play. And I think um, the, these sort of what we call gatekeeping rules, like, um, you know, sort of the unauthorized practice of law rules or, you know, the fee splitting rules, uh, they have their uh, important justification, you know, for to protect consumers from poor legal advice, and you know, the way we've done that thus far is to require that uh, that people who dispense legal advice they go through law school and get their bar exam, have some practice experience, and it's it's a question you know, if that's the perfect way to ensure this consumer protection, right? Uh, there may be technologies that actually are better at, uh, at providing legal advice in a specific area, just because they have all the data that no human lawyer can have. You know, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, platforms that uh, are trying to advise people on whether they should sue their, their airline or not. You get, you know, this recourse against, uh, you know, flight being laid or losing your luggage. But uh, but that's sort of the, that's the way we've done it thus far at Codex. We've actually been thinking about uh, calling for a a machine uh, uh, sort of a challenge where people would try to create a computational law system or a robo lawyer that could pass the bar exam. And uh, we don't have the technology not there yet. Nobody's nobody's done that yet, to my knowledge. But I think it's an it would be an interesting test. You know, what is it if if a machine can do that? What does it say about our way of uh, of you know regulating the profession and trying to make sure that consumers are protected and get the best the best legal advice? And uh, anyway, so this is still something um, that uh, that I think um, we ought to do in the future. And just to, I think it'd be an interesting test of the state of the art of the technology. But that's it. So regulators around the world have these rules, these gatekeeping rules. I think there's a lot of pressure um, on regulators to try to loosen some of those rules, to make it easier for new entrants to come to, to bring new technologies, new innovations to consumers. There's a big access to justice uh, issue and problem in the United States and elsewhere. And so in different states in the United States, there are uh, different experiments underway, so-called uh, regulatory sandbox uh, projects. I think Arizona, Utah, California is considering one. We still have to, to uh, sort of evaluate the outcomes of those experiments that's just going on right now. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, there's definitely movement. And I think, uh, I think to come back to your question, 
yes, I think the regulators have an important role to play. They have to protect consumers and they also have to promote innovation and allow for certain innovations. And it's a difficult balance to strike and it's very political. And, uh, and lawyers are very good at making good arguments. <laughs> and, uh, and, but also legal technologists uh, give finding good arguments. And so, so this is just sort of unfolding in front of us as we, it has been for several years now, but it's an ongoing issue. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I think there will be more, more things that will be allowed. There will be some things that will be setbacks, I'm sure. And, and backlashes, but I think there's definitely some momentum towards more uh, regulatory relaxation around uh, UPL and um, and fee splitting rules, and uh, and so I think uh, yeah, it's exciting. Get out the popcorn. It's exciting time to watch these debates. <laughs> And it's, and it's fascinating to create technology that might be able to take the bar. I know uh, Alibaba told me they'd created a platform which should uh, beaten the average human on the Stanford reading and comprehension test. Right. So okay. can't be a can't be a long way away for if if computers can comprehend English better than the wow. average human, how long before they can take a law exam better than the average well, human? I do wonder if it's, it's the right way around though. Should it should be, should lawyers, should, should lawyers uh, p pass a test that the robots set or should robots t pass a test that the lawyers set? Yeah. I'm not too sure which is the right one. <laughs> it's a good question. So it's a great question, Mark. So I think, you know, that question alone, can a machine pass the, the bar exam is answered, you know, very differently by different folks on the technology side so some people who are kind of hardcore believers in in data-driven ai the natural language processing will say okay with some concerted effort in a couple of months we can have the natural language processing algorithms to understand you know those fact patterns and and spit out an, an answer and others say no, it's like you, in order, there's a lot of common sense knowledge uh, that is sort of an, assumed by these typical bar exam questions, like, you know, sort of all the knowledge you have to have, understanding how the world operates and <clears throat> background knowledge and, you know, common sense knowledge that the computers go using, you know, sort of statistical analysis will not understand so they will come up with a lot of nonsense and you need to model you have to need an ontology of so many areas of the world and a model of the world for the computer to actually be able to reason itself to the right answer but so that that's sort of like you know sort of where the, the different philosophies and paradigms kind of clash in the, on this particular issue but anyways it's a it's a it's an interesting question in itself Fantastic, fantastic. And you mentioned the um, Codex, and I think you're the co-founder and executive director. What's Codex? What does it do? What did you set it up to do? Um, what What do you see as the future? All right, that's a great question. Um, Codex was set up uh, more than 15 years ago now, and it is a joint center between the Stanford Computer Science Department and the Stanford Law School that aims to bring information technology to the legal system to make the legal system more efficient, more efficient for all stakeholders, not just legal professionals. Our So it's called the Center for Legal Informatics, and that's a broad umbrella. It encompasses many different technologies that are trying to do things differently in the legal system. But our particular focus is on what we call computational law. Computational law is the mechanization and the automation of legal analysis. 
And so if you think about in the US, everybody knows uh, the TurboTax system, which is a system that has a representation, a computable representation of the tax code uh, in it, and it can apply that representation to the facts of the specific user. So that's a classic computational law system. And that approach can be used in many other areas of the law. There's, you know, sort of expert systems for a variety of different areas of the law. One hot area that we are focusing on right now is this whole field of computational contracts, contracts that are operationalizable that computers understand and where computers can, you know, help perform the obligations of the contract or <clears throat> help you know, monitor the performance of the obligations of a contract. Or we can use this approach to model different outcomes. If I change this clause in a contract, you know, what's the impact on my bottom line? Or what does it cost me? And so that's an exciting technology. And we're just teaming up with different players in the insurance industry. And maybe of interest to you, as you, I know you have a particular interest in the financial industry and the insurance industry is an adjacent industry to that. In the insurance industry, the contract is the, the product, as we say, it's actually the commodity that's being traded is the, is the contract. And, uh, and so it's very much part of the digital transformation of the insurance industry. And so we've teamed up uh, to create an initiative at Stanford called the Codex Insurance Initiative. And that concerns itself with the transformation and the, sort of the bringing of this computational technology, computational contracts technology to the insurance space. And so that's that's kind of what's what's currently hot for us. But under the Codex umbrella, there's many other uh, legal tech projects being carried out. There are folks working on computational antitrust. There are people working on sort of AI-generated uh, uh, AI generated legal documents. There are folks working on uh, blockchain law and policy. Uh, there are people working on a, you know, sort of a legal, open legal data, open legal data API. So there's a variety of different projects that people who are affiliated with the center are working on. So we are, to some degree, we are a research center. We do, we try to advance the state of uh, the art in a particular area, but we also community. So we have somewhat inadvertently become also a community of folks who are trying to do things differently in the legal space. And so we try to serve as a sounding board, as a place for people to connect, to showcase interesting new ideas. And so we have you know, different ways to bring the stakeholders together and, and get synced up and you know, try to advance the state of, state of the art. So that's, that's Codex in a nutshell. That's absolutely fantastic. And there's computational contracts and smart contracts as other people know them you know there's something i've been uh, working with for years and I, I i really get the sense that within a decade certainly my prediction is 50 percent of all cross-border contracts will be computational because they de-risk and enhance therefore the reward right. on on a contract they don't need to be to the extent I, I to the extent i presented to a panel of 29 chief justices the need for a court of the blockchain to uh, to be able to um, adjudicate disputes on on these contracts rather than leaving it to the owner of the contract to uh, to appoint uh, an oracle or some other form of determination but um, it certainly seems to me a very exciting area of the intersect of law and uh, commerce and, and you of course uh, advise many many companies um, on on development and growth, particularly in the legal technology space, um, in high demand, I'm told, 
to help companies uh, become another unicorn from zero to a billion in the fastest possible time. Um, tell me, what do you see as the greatest opportunities in the legal tech space? Where would you bet your last dollar? Uh, and what do you see as the challenges in the legal tech space that are, that are prohibiting uh, growth? Uh, okay, great. Um, it's hard to say, you know, what's sort of the most, uh, you know, area that is the most ripe with opportunity for, for legal tech. You know, we have um, meetings every week and people come through the, the meeting and so many times I'm like, wow, I didn't know there's another niche that these guys identified in the legal space. And so that's, that's so exciting, right? Because I feel like, you know, we've only started to scratch the surface. Um, and many times I would have told people like, look, you know, it's maybe not a good idea to start yet another e-discovery company or another uh, contract analytics company or a contract lifecycle management company, because there's so many already, right? But then uh, we see new players emerge that, that do phenomenally well, <laughs> even though it's been already a crowded field. So, so I've been become a little bit more cautious with <laughs> the advice I dispense to folks who like, if people have a really good idea and a good team, uh, they can go into, into spaces that may seem already you know, kind of crowded. But I would say one thing, I think, um, at least from our perspective, I think the, the area of uh, helping citizens interact with the government is one that, that has uh, a lot of opportunity. The government, you know, is sort of a, can be a fickle customer, but <laughs> once you're with the government, it can also be a very uh, faithful customer and a great uh, customer to have. And, and we all know how painful it can be to interact with the go government. There's so much legacy infrastructure out there, you know, and forms that, you know, that are not intelligent forms and websites that are not, not, not working. And, you know, this is a tremendous amount of opportunity, I think, working with the government. I think the whole space of like, uh, you know, legal technology on the blockchain, you know, though very hyped in recent years and perhaps having gone to some dehyping along with the, the, the crypto craze, uh, I think uh, that that will be a space that, that, that will be important in, in legal, in, in a legal context. Um, and there's uh, so many areas where there are intermediaries that are not necessarily needed when you have a, a blockchain uh, infrastructure and and those are legal settings, right? And and those and, and there, I think you know, there's there's going to be a lot of opportunity too. And maybe we are now closer to the point where we'll see sort of the next uh, sort of or the first kind of unicorn uh, emerge in that space. So so I think yeah, those are some. I mean. There's probably many other areas, but those are some that sort of come to the to mind first. Um, we think, you know, this whole space of computable contract is, of course, is a very exciting space too. Um, there's a lot of people doing things in in the IP tech space. That's also that's it's its own niche with its own rules and uh, dynamics. Then, of course, yeah, fintech, you know, sort of an adjacent field. Uh, but what are some of the challenges? Uh, I yes, we mentioned the sort of the gatekeeper. If you're trying to give dispense legal advice, you know you will, you know, uh, deliver uh, legal services. Then you will sort of hit into those gatekeeping regulations that we mentioned before. 
Um, it was uh, challenging for legal tech companies to sell into the law firm. Law firms are also kind of hard to sell into. It's maybe a bit easier to sell into the corporate law departments. That's what a lot of legal techs are doing. Um, and then they, you know, they expect their customer, the law department customer, to bring their law firms along. Uh, that's also not easy. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, off offers that, um, you know, many many vendors that are trying to sell their services to corporate law departments. It's kind of hard to for them to cut through the noise and find the right provider for them. So, you know, kind of uh, sort of raising above the crowd is, is kind of challenging for, for legal tech companies too. And then uh, it used to be kind of harder in the past. Maybe it's a bit easier now to attract capital. Back in the day, you know, legal tech was its own kind of fringe category. Now it's become perhaps a little bit more mainstream for, for even sort of marquee in, in investors, VCs, or probably even private equity. So, so yeah, so that that's become a little easier. But it, it historically was perhaps a bit more challenging to um, to attract capital. And then yes, we're just many times we're also talking about kind of smaller kind of place, right? It was the you know the legal tech company, you know, had a valuation of uh, you know so hundred million dollars that that you know, that was pretty good for legal tech companies. And then frequently they were acquired by some of the big players like Thomson Reuters or LexisNexis. Uh, and that's smaller than, you know, many other kind of companies in, in other areas um, can accomplish, you know, with some v VC funding and so on. So that that was perhaps a little bit of a, of a challenge too. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's at least my initial thoughts. I'm sure there's, there's additional challenges too, but uh, I think, yeah, I, I think the momentum is certainly growing and there's a growing group of folks around the world, you know, who are excited to, to do legal tech, um, legal hacking groups popping up on every uh, company, uh, on every continent. And, um, and yeah, I think, uh, Hopefully, we'll also see, you know, some of those <clears throat> technologies that are now created mostly for corporate law departments, you know, hopefully that will eventually kind of, you know, reach, you know, the, the end consumer and make certain legal issues more, you know, transparent and, and more actionable even for the consumer, right? There's one, you know, there's big information asymmetry many times between consumers and corporations. I think legal tech can... Can help there. Um, one form of, you know, just a little additional digression here, but uh, a one form of this computational law area is what we call embedded law. Embedded law means sort of bringing relevant legal information to the human decision maker when needed. And I think that can really empower consumers to make good decisions and, you know, stay out of trouble. So, yes. Anyways, that. That wasn't on the challenges. That's more on the opportunities. I think that's an, you know, this embedded law. I think is an interesting uh, opportunity area too. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, certainly more opportunities and challenges in the way you described yeah. it, which is, uh, <laughs> I think, a view that we share. Uh, we'll finish with the last question. I was chatting to someone yesterday, and they said this is the era for the rise of the liberal revolutionary. 
And I said, what is a liberal revolutionary? And they said, people who want to make society better, but not necessarily in small steps. Um, and there was a feeling that the significant wealth that, that, that some of these pioneers have made in, in digital currencies particularly, has left people who do want to revolutionize the legal system and not in, in an incremental way uh, with the funds to try and create these uh, different and more liberal and perhaps greater access to justice societies. Um, what's your view? Is this the rise of the liberal revolutionary or do you see uh, law tech as being more incremental in the development of, uh, of the legal system? I would say, you know, thus far, you know, it's been mostly incremental. You know, I don't think we have seen any big kind of disruptive uh, technologies. Uh, like, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, you mentioned uh, Uber, for example, as an example of a disruptive technology, you know, for, you know, for the taxi industry, certainly disruptive. Um, and I'm not, I'm not aware of any sort of legal tech technologies, and I may be wrong on that, but that have been at least for one sub-segment of the legal industry that, you know, have been as disruptive as, you know, the Uber example, or, you know, the, let's see, let's say how iTunes was disruptive to the recording industry or then Spotify and so on. But, uh, but sort of looking forward, you know, it's, uh, I think it's uh, conceivable that, um, that some of those folks who, you know, who are sort of liberals and who want to really sort of break things up and do things very differently in some areas, they can use the significant amount of uh, cash they were able to generate to, to do just that. So certainly aspirationally, I think, you know, you know, that's that, that that's that's an interesting that's an interesting thought. And who knows, maybe we'll see that in some areas. But thus far, I think it would has innovation in legal tech has been mostly incremental. Fantastic. Dr. Vegel, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I suspect you will be inundated, further inundated, not only with requests to be students, but requests for your guidance in creating the next unicorn. Let's hope it's uh, it's going to be in Central Asia. I've got a strong suspicion that the, the skill set there will, will rise to the challenge. But it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was It was really wonderful to talk to you. This podcast is being produced by the Astana International Financial Centre and moderated by the chairman of the AIFC Law Tech Advisory Council, Mark Beer. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to hear more information on the Astana International Financial Centre's Law Tech Advisory Council, please follow us on LinkedIn.